Welcome, everyone, to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. I am your co-host, David Pastrana. And I am your co-host, Mike Reeves. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. On today's episode, we will be discussing integrating concussion management into routine orthopedic practice. Mike, tell me a little bit about why this topic's important to you and why we felt like we needed to dedicate an episode to this topic. Concussion management has been evolving significantly over the course of the past you know, 10, 15 years or so. And us as a profession, we're pretty well set up to be on the front lines of kind of managing these patients as far as getting them back to doing what, what they need to do. And, and I think that we might also need to kind of advocate more for getting patients in a little bit earlier after concussion and potentially working ourselves into earlier management as well. Right. I agree with everything that you said there. So one thing that I've noticed is that a lot of clinicians are getting training in concussion management and we're really capable of handling this patient population. But a lot of physicians aren't necessarily aware of everything we can do when it comes to concussion management, especially in those more rural areas. So we have a lot of physical therapists that have the skills to address a lot of complaints in this population, but the referrals just aren't coming in. So something I wanted to talk about in this podcast as well was kind of integrating concussion management into our orthopedic practice, especially with our motor vehicle accident, whiplash, those type of patients that might have concomitant cervical spine issues. And I think this is a real opportunity for us to not only manage the patient complaint in regards to the cervical spine, but really identify those concussions early on, make the physicians aware of a potential concussion, and then that's going to help give us a little bit more respect as far as communicating our findings with other healthcare providers, and then two, really helping physicians understand that we're capable of identifying and treating and managing these patients. How often would you say that when you were doing your internal traveling that you received a referral for concussion? Do you think that's kind of standard practice? Did you get a lot of concussions from the physicians in those underserved areas? It all depended on where I was, but for the most part, no, I, I, didn't, I didn't see it all that much. Most of the clinics that I was at, I was the only person that actively enjoyed treating concussion. Uh, so at a few of the clinics that I was at, we started to market it a little bit and I would end up doing, you know, an in-service or two on, you know, how to treat concussion. And then they'd hopefully be able to kind of continue treating whenever I left. I think one or two of the clinics started to started to market more um, even after I, I left, um, which I think was good. More recently, I've been treating a lot more concussion. started working in the pediatric sports world about six months ago. And when I first started, it was kind of around that fall, fall season. And approximately 25 to 30% of my caseload was concussion for about you know three or four months. And so I think it depends on kind of where you are, where, where you're going to get the referrals. A lot of them are in that, you know, if you're in the sports world, you're probably going to get them a lot. Uh, outside of that, I think you made a very good point that physicians probably just aren't 100% sure when to refer, who to refer, and what we can offer. Um, so I think we kind of may have to advocate for ourselves a little bit better with that population. And as far as our background in concussion, Mike and I both work at a sports medicine facility in Pittsburgh that's kind of the mecca of concussion management. And I feel like we, we got a really good background in it with our education at Pitt and then just being able to watch and mentor with some of the clinicians every now and then as far as exertional concussion management and then really being trained as far as implementing vestibular components for concussion management as well. 
Yeah, I had one of my uh, clinicals was actually in like an outpatient neurological clinic. And so I was able to get some kind of concussion experience there. Um, and so how they had it broken down was essentially you'd kind of do your vestibular rehab. And then once that started to clear up, you kind of transition to exertion. Um, so it's a little bit more like you do this phase and this phase. And I, I think now it's much more working into kind of doing everything together. So kind of targeting their most important profile as it's normally referred to in the concussion world more prominently, but making sure that you're addressing anything that might potentially need need, need addressed as well. Right. Yeah. I think that's how I've typically done it. I typically have addressed the vestibular components and the cervical components. And then as their symptoms go away at rest, then I typically start to transition them into exertion. And it really is patient dependent. Like you said, it depends what profile they fit. There's some that you know might fit into that more anxiety psychological component where when they're exposed to a particular activity that they're apprehensive of or triggers the memories of, of how they actually were injured, those particular activities may even have more of an effect on how they experience symptoms. So there is a psychosocial, a huge psychosocial component to concussion management as well, just because our psychosocial interpretation of situations can invoke emotion and those emotions have very real physiological effects in regards to our heart rate and our autonomic system response. And the autonomic nervous system is heavily involved with how the individual responds in regards to their symptom presentation during concussion management. Yeah. And I think one thing that I've started doing with every single one of my concussion patients is day one, no matter what their limiting profiles are, I get them on some sort of symptom limited exertion program, even if that's just going for a walk. Sometimes on that initial evaluation, a lot of times there's just not quite enough time to get in every aspect of the assessment that you want. So even if I'm not able to get them on a treadmill, I'll normally just talk to them about you know the benefits of, of exercise Obviously, the exercises that, that I give you targeting, you know, maybe some vestibular stuff, maybe some cervical stuff, potentially some balance deficits. Um, as I work on those, in addition to that, I want you to maybe try and get out and go for, even if it's just you know a 20-minute walk every other day type of thing, I, I want you to do something like that four or five times before before you see me next. And I think that seems to be pretty good. There's a lot of research coming out of that you know kind of Letty group coming out of Buffalo where they're doing a lot of that exertional research. And what they found is if you get people just doing a simple symptom-limited walking program even like two or three days after their concussion they they tend to do better so you know for a while it was get them going maybe after a couple of weeks and they kind of bumped that back to a little bit less and then they did as short as five days and i think they did they're down to as short as three days for when you start that symptom limited activity and consistently the earlier you start the better they do and, and the less they are less likely they are to have prolonged symptoms so that's kind of something that i've been i've been kind of working and making sure that they're doing something outside of therapy and not not completely shutting down and I think that's a good bridge into the topic that I wanted to get into as far as the evaluation of concussion, not only for a specific concussion referral, but for those orthopedic patients that get referred for neck pain or whiplash or motor vehicle accident. What are some subjective interview questions that you include with these patients to kind of rule in or rule out or help you think that maybe they have a concussion? Just because a lot of those symptoms can kind of overlap as far as headache, is it cervicogenic, is it concussion-based? So what are some subjective interview questions that you include that kind of help you navigate some of those challenges of peeling back the layers and deciding if it's cervicogenic or if it's uh, concussion-based? Yeah, so I think you have to start with obviously your your history, right? And you have to talk about the mechanism. How did this happen, right? Were you in a car accident? Were you playing a sport? Did, did you hit your head? 
So if they have some sort of contact causing a whipping motion of, of the head, right, where you can reasonably expect force to be impacted on the brain, and then you kind of need to tease out any sort of contributions from the neck throughout your your objective exam. Um, obviously, screen asking questions about you know if they have neck pain, if they have any symptoms when they when they move their move their head and neck around. But I think a subjective gets you started on, on the right track, and then your objective exam will really start to tease out where the symptoms are coming from. Right. For me, the main thing that I look at or that I ask about is photophobia or phonophobia, any increased sensitivity to lights or sounds. That's going to be something that you won't necessarily see with just a cervicogenic component that's going to lead me down the path of concussion. Dizziness is one of those where you can kind of be on the fence. There are components of cervicogenic dizziness. So usually what I what I really look for is that photophonia or, or phonophobia so, Mike, what is some day one education if you suspect a patient has a concussion and you want to kind of guide them through the rehabilitation process, at least early on when they're very acute? What do you typically tell them as far as how to manage a concussion at home in those early phases? Yeah, so how I generally tend to preface my eval is I say, okay, there's a good chance you have a concussion. So what I'm going to do is we're going to kind of break it down. I say we're going to look at, you know, your neck. We're going to make sure everything looks good there. Then we're going to look at your vestibular system, which might make you feel a little bit dizzy if you have any symptoms coming from that. We're going to look at your eyes. We'll look at your balance. And then we're going to, if we have time, get you on the treadmill and get you walking a little bit. And we're going to see how, how your brain responds to kind of getting that heart rate up a little bit. And then based on what I find, I'll then kind of educate them a little bit more on specific things that we're going to be working on. Yeah, I think you have to really identify what domain that that patient falls into and then educate appropriately. I feel like when I think of this particular population, I'm thinking the the motor vehicle accident whiplash that show up a few days after a week after that car accident. And these are the ones that typically go with undiagnosed concussions. The physicians that they see in the ER, even their primary care, really focused on more orthopedic complaints that they can really address, clearing any red flags. So when they come to see me, if I feel they have some of those concussion symptoms, a lot of individuals have misinformation or either old information regarding what's appropriate care or procedure. So the main thing I try to advise is to stay away from trying to isolate themselves in the dark room, kind of that old style of thinking as far as removing all the provocative stimuli. Again, if they're very acute, I kind of just tell them, you know, I don't want you to try to do any more than you normally do, but I don't want you to try to do any less. Try to stay within your normal daily activity path. Patterns. You're going to feel fatigued, tired. You're going to want to rest, take a nap, try to resist that and just try to stay as, as active as you can in regards to just living your normal life. Now, this isn't to say that the more exercise you do, the better. There is some evidence that just letting those acute symptoms resolve, at least in the early three to five days after for those high irritability concussion patients is going to be beneficial. And then I tell them as far as any exercises to address the symptoms will initiate in therapy as, as we start to go. Any thoughts on that, Mike? No, I think that that's all pretty good. Just kind of encouraging them to kind of do their normal day-to-day things. Just let symptoms kind of be their guide. I kind of let them know. It's like, if you have a little bit of symptoms, that's okay. Don't lose sleep over. You're not making your head worse. You're actually probably helping things as long as you're not increasing things by too much. So if your symptoms are increasing a little bit, that's okay. If you find that they're getting to about a five out of 10 or so, just kind of back it off and let them calm back down before you get after your normal activities again. 
right? And then as far as the evaluation goes, what are some things that, that you look at during a concussion evaluation that help you kind of hone in on, on the causes of their complaint and which domain they're going to fall into or which category they'll fall into as far as management? I know you did touch on, on some of that a little bit earlier here when you mentioned putting them on a treadmill and looking at their response to aerobic activity and, and doing some, some vestibular testing. So what, what do you typically look at? Yeah, so I'll do a little bit of like a shameless plug here. So I actually just kind of uploaded my personal concussion eval up into a blog post on my website at reevespt.com. So there you can kind of see like what my evaluation look like looks like. And then there's also a concussion evaluation and treatment document that kind of dives a little bit more into some extra physiology and some more descriptions of the individual tests. Generally, it's going to start with a cervical spine screen. So make sure there's no upper cervical instability. So I'll do your standard sharp presser, ALR kick test, uh, maybe a transverse ligament test, potentially check a VBI. And then it's going to look at some sustained cervical spine positioning and see if putting their neck into any position seems to reproduce any of their symptoms, whether it be nauseousness, headache, dizziness. I'll also, depending on if I think that there's some sort of cervical spine contribution, I'll do potentially like a head neck differentiation test, seated neck torsion test. And most of those tests are, are just designed to essentially move the body on the head instead of the head on the body with the, the goal of removing some of the vestibular input. That's normally what my cervical spine screen is going to look like. At that point, I'll probably move on to a quick vestibular screen, which is just, just going to be a VOMS assessment. That's my, my, my day one vestibular screen is simply going to be a VOMS assessment and then use that to potentially guide treatment there. I'll also do some additional ocular screening if I'm picking up some funky things on my VOMS assessment. But if you don't feel comfortable treating the eyes, then you're going to want to refer them to a neurooptometrist if you don't have if you don't have any sort of additional training, that side of things. After that, I'll switch over and do a quick balance exam. And I normally just use the BEST test. So the, the BEST test stands for uh, Balance Error Scoring System. And it's simply six total positions. So it's three on firm ground, three on foam. And they're all going to be performed with your eyes closed. It's feet together, tandem stance, and single leg stance. And there is a standardized list of errors that are to be counted. And you count each individual error, you total them up, and that's your score on the exam. Um, They have some normative data. I think roughly 12-ish is about standard for your normal healthy healthy adult. Ideally, you compare it to a baseline, which most people don't have. But really just look for improvement over time and like significant abnormalities with their balance there. At that point, if we have time, I'll put them on the treadmill, just walking at a progressive incline and looking for symptom reproduction. The test is originally described using heart rate. So when you prescribe your treatment, you're going to get their heart rate at onset of symptoms. And then you prescribe them their outside of therapy activity at 80% of that heart rate. Most of the times, I don't have a good heart rate monitoring system uh, currently set up at my clinic. So I'll just use an RPE. So I have the RPE sitting right in front of them. And I have them let me know, you know, when they have symptom onset have them say what that RPE is. And then I say, let's you know go one or two below that. And then that'll be about what intensity I want you exercising until you see me again. Right. I did want to touch more on the vestibular ocular motor screen, the VOMS. I think this is a big one for me just because I'm not a dedicated concussion therapist or concussion specialist. But I think if you can memorize the VOMS and really memorize the components and understand how it works, not only as an evaluative tool, but as a treatment tool, that's really going to be helpful for, for helping you manage the vestibular components of the concussion. For our listeners who aren't too familiar with the VOMS, I'll kind of just run through it really briefly. So basically, 
all you do is you get a baseline for their symptoms. And the symptoms you're looking for are headache, dizziness, fogginess, and nausea. And you get the severity from zero to 10. Are taking the symptoms after each examination procedure and having them quantify the intensity of those symptoms. And you want to make sure that their symptoms come back down to baseline before moving on to the next procedure. So that's just something important to keep in mind. And then once you have that baseline, you're going through various vestibular and ocular exercises such as smooth pursuits, vertical and horizontal saccades, near point convergence, a horizontal VOR, a vertical VOR, and then visual motion sensitivity tests. And if you want to access this particular assessment, you could pretty much find it on Google. If you, if you type VOMS concussion, it's, it's going to pull up a PDF file that really walks you through it, tells you how to set the metronome, what the cutoff values are, and will walk you through the entire assessment. So that's something that I think would be beneficial just to have on hand in your clinic if it's not something that you're already doing, because it's going to be a quick resource to help you not only evaluate, but manage and treat those concussion patients. And then something else that I wanted to touch on was making sure that when you're doing the smooth pursuits that you are moving the pen at the appropriate velocity. Typically what I've seen is clinicians move the pen really quickly and instead of creating a smooth pursuit, they're actually getting psychotic eye movements. So that's just a tip when performing the procedure to help get an accurate assessment. Mike, do you use any other vestibular exercises besides the VOMS? The VOMS will, will essentially point me in the right direction for what I want to treat, right? So if they're symptomatic with horizontal VOR, but they're not symptomatic with smooth pursuits, then my exercise is going to be horizontal VOR. I'll tend to give them that. Initially, it's tested at 180 beats per minute. So if they have significant symptoms with that, then I might back off the speed a little bit and get it down to a point where it only increases their symptoms just a little bit. And I'll normally have my patients download just a simple metronome app on their phone. We'll find the speed that they get symptom onset. And I say, this is where I want you to work for now, as this gets easier and you start to have less symptom reproduction, and when you try to increase it by five beats per minute. Once that gets easy, then increase it again. As whatever exercise I choose from that VOMS assessment starts to get easier, it's tested in a pretty controlled environment where they're seated, blank background, just progress the stability of the surface, make it less stable, and progress their background a little bit, and then progress them into activity. So it all starts with that simple screen of what is our issue, and then just make the environment around that a little bit more difficult. And that's kind of how that treatment will go. As far as exertion goes, do you typically stick to that Buffalo treadmill test or do you deviate from that and do your own exercises? What do you typically do when it comes to transitioning into exertion? It all depends on their um, severity. Uh, so if, if they tend to be pretty irritable with exertion, I tend to just continue to use the Buffalo concussion treadmill test just because it, it makes it simple. You know, we kind of at that first, whatever the first day is that we assess it, we kind of established their baseline, right? You know, you became symptomatic at level 12, right? So we can crank it up to maybe level 10 or so to start and have them go there for a little while. If they're still feeling pretty good, you know, maybe about 10 minutes in, maybe we'll try and increase it just a, just a little bit there. So ideally you're, you're monitoring heart rate, right? But like I said, you know, not everyone has a good way to, to measure heart rate. Um, I'm looking into getting something like that set up for my clinic now, but it's just not there yet. So I tend to just use a, a, a rough RPE, right? We write down what RPE they became symptomatic at the visit before and then try and work out right around there and then gradually progress that treadmill incline as they're able to tolerate. Once they kind of progress past that, right, where they're 
you know, they're, they're able to walk on a treadmill pretty good. You know, we have the incline up decently high and they're able to walk for about 20 minutes or so without symptom onset or without much symptom onset at all. I might ask them if they prefer jogging and then maybe we'll try jogging on a treadmill, kind of see how that goes and just get them in that nice steady state exercise for about 20 minutes or so. Yeah, I think starting them off with the buffalo treadmill test or something that's just very repetitive aerobic activity is a good place to start. I think one thing to consider is as you're getting them toward the phase where they want to return to their activity and return to sport is remembering those components of the VODs that you pulled out that were most provocative and then incorporating those into the exertional activity. So criticism of the Buffalo treadmill test and and some of those other aerobic, gradually progressive aerobic exercise programs is going to be that it doesn't incorporate the stibular components of head and eye movement coordination that are going to be involved in that early vestibular phase. So I think coupling the vestibular, the head and neck movements with the eye movements in addition to exertional activities really simulates what you're going to be doing in real time during sport. So I think incorporating all of that into your end stage exercises as far as direction changes, head and neck turns, those type of movements is really going to be beneficial. Yep. And I think that that's perfect. And that kind of falls right into kind of our irritability discussion that we kind of touch on with every single podcast that, that we've that we've done so far as they kind of become less irritable and their symptoms aren't able to be reproduced as easily with exertion. They're progressing well through, through the rehab. It's important to kind of work in all components that you're trying to address. So if they are symptomatic, like you said, with both vestibular and with exertion, working in some head turns into their activity. And as they even get past that, then you're essentially doing, you know, a conditioning program for their sport. If they're trying to get back to a sport, maybe they're doing side shuffling while catching a ball with head turns, forward, backward shuttles while turning their head and and really just working in all sorts of things. There's no perfect way to do it. Um, You just need to understand the goals of what you're going for. And then you can get creative with exercises for these patients once they get kind of closer to that, you know, return to sport or return to normal function. And what do you typically look for or What's a good way to objectively measure and say, okay, this patient is ready to return to activity based on these findings? What do you use? Uh, yeah, so we were fortunate enough to have access to the UPMC exit test, which is essentially their return to activity clearance. Theirs is it's good. So it, it essentially involves about a half hour of cardio activity split between either the bike or the elliptical or the treadmill. And then it's essentially just a couple of little uh, circuit type workouts that involve some exertional types of things, as well as some vestibular types of things. Um, And then it finishes with kind of just like a free for all. You you get to choose a couple of drills or activities that you think are going to be good for that patient specifically. So it gives you a, a little bit of freedom there. Right. And some some of the components of that exit test that you mentioned from UPMC is speed steps, forward and backward jogging, kind of like you would do like in a basketball drill suicides, a two-way jump turn toss. So the patient would stand in the center of two clinicians or a clinician and an aide and kind of do a 180 jump, tossing a ball back and forth between the two clinicians or the the clinician and the aide. And then some plyometric jumps are going to be on the step going side to side to touch the cones. Just wanted to give our listeners a little bit of an idea of some of the exercises that were included in that test, just so that they can design some similar interventions. As far as measuring symptoms and measuring heart rate, I know you mentioned both of those during your testing. Do you look at blood pressure at all, Mike? 
Blood pressure is actually not something that I have historically measured during. Uh, I'll take it before fairly consistently, but it's actually probably something that I, that I should probably consider monitoring a little bit more frequently, even if it's like, you know, before, potentially during one of their rest breaks, if we're doing some sort of, you know, circuit training or something along those lines. It's just, it's difficult to measure um, blood pressure while they're doing any sort of activity. You might be able to do it while they're walking on a treadmill potentially, but it's just kind of difficult to monitor. So I probably should start looking at it a little bit more, maybe at like a halfway point during their exercise or maybe at the end and, and kind of see what that response looks like. But yeah, and it's also, it's also kind of hard uh, with this population where if it's, you know, slightly or moderately high, you're, you're not going to know because you don't you don't have a baseline so you have no, nothing to compare you know what their blood pressure is going to look like but any of your responses that are in that moderate increase where you're probably splitting hairs as to whether they're inside or outside of, of normative values probably aren't going to give you that much good information clinically since you don't have a baseline on that person right i agree i typically haven't measured it even though a lot of the research that i've read has suggested that that autonomic dysfunction is really related to what they experience and that abnormal changes in their blood pressure response to certain either positional changes or exertional activities are correlated with symptom provocation. And personally, I've just let symptom provocation be my guide. Usually if they get to a certain heart rate or a certain RPE as far as their exertional level, I use that as my guide and my baseline to either hold activity or, or progress activity the next visit. So blood pressure is not something that I traditionally have used either. So Mike, I wanted to talk a little bit about the pathophysiology of concussion and how our body physically responds to exertion exercise. So what we've seen is at rest, those concussion patients actually have decreased cerebral blood flow. And this is what they believe causes the symptoms of headache, fogginess, dizziness, all those concussion symptoms that are characteristic are caused by that decreased cerebral blood flow. When they started exercising these patients and exerting them, they had a huge swing in sympathetic activity that ended up causing increased cerebral blood flow. And what ended up happening is that increased cerebral blood flow correlated with the onset of their symptoms. A lot of the concussion symptoms can be attributed to dysfunction in the autonomic nervous system in between transitioning from parasympathetic to sympathetic responses to exercise. Something interesting is a few studies have also looked at orthostatic intolerance that's going from supine to sit. And they've noticed orthostatic intolerance in those patients with concussion symptoms as well. And something that is interesting and kind of up and coming is looking at heart rate variability. So what this is, is every time your heart beats, it isn't exactly beating at that same interval of, of one second every second for that 60 beats per minute. Sometimes it's at 0.9, sometimes it's at 1.1. And what this represents is a constant tug of war between your sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So the more variability that you have in your heart rate, the more it suggests that you have that, that balance between sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system activity. And once it becomes more sympathetic, you actually get more consistency in that heartbeat and that heart rate variability drop. And heart rate variability can be affected by things such as stress, anything that's going to provoke more sympathetic activity something interesting to look at in concussion patients just to see if that heart rate variability does affect what they're experiencing at that given point in time. I know there is some evidence that concussion athletes have altered heart rate variability when they exercise. So that's something interesting to look at. Yeah. And one thing that I've just kind of recently been learning about just a little bit is, you know, some of the issues with the heart rate var variability and some of the stuff with like autonomic nervous system and concussion is that uh, in concussed individuals, they have a little bit of a harder time switching from parasympathetic to sympathetic. 
And yeah. I think thinking about that heart rate variability is interesting just based on this information that alterations in cerebral blood flow are going to influence what the patient experiences and that those with symptom provocation with exertion get too much cerebral blood flow and then at rest they actually don't have enough cerebral blood flow and how those changes in blood flow actually correlate with what they experience. So that's something really interesting. I think it's something that we didn't traditionally think about when it came to concussion, but it's really helping create bridges between why we do exertion and why it works and how it's going to help us better understand the post-concussion syndrome and give us maybe hopefully a more objective measure that, that we can track as far as identifying those that, that are either ready to return to sport or ready to return to their previous level of function. So Mike, in regards to future perspectives of PT and concussion management, are there any areas that you feel like we still don't know enough about or that we can improve on or things that you feel like as a whole, the profession needs to start doing more of? I think that the there needs to be a general trend into getting patients in to see us earlier. I think sometimes what will happen is even if even if physicians provide decent education on day one, I just don't think they have enough time to do it justice. They might say, all right, kind of stay active and let symptoms kind of be your guy. But I think that that's not quite enough for these patients. I think concussions is a little bit of a scary injury. Um, and especially with all the layers that can potentially be contributing, right? We have the neck, we have the vestibular system, we have the exertional side things. We have some balanced stuff. There's all sorts of psychological things involved. I also think that just simple screening for, um, especially in like the the youth athlete, there's a little bit of concern for what's called uh, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS, you'll hear it as. Um, and that's kind of one of those things you talked about that a little bit of orthostatic intolerance. Um, and this is looking at the heart rate side of that. And so there's simple, there's a simple little screen that you can do to see if there's potentially some suspicion of it. But the big things are they're going to stand up and they're going to feel like super lightheaded and off. So your diagnostic criteria is going to be in adolescence age 12 to 19. You're going to be looking at a heart rate increase of greater than 40 beats per minute or a sustained orthostatic heart rate of greater than 120 beats per minute with a less than 20 over 10 change in their blood pressure. Um, in adults, the criteria is going to be a little bit different and just that the heart rate increase is greater than 30 beats per minute or a sustained orthostatic heart rate of that same 120 beats per minute. And then same thing, less than a 20 over 10 millimeter mercury decrease in their blood pressure. Right. Yeah, I think those are all important things to think about. My end's a little bit less specialized when it comes to managing concussion just because I'm more of an orthotherapist. So for all my orthotherapists that are listening to this podcast, I think as far as us really helping to advocate for the profession and helping position ourselves as individuals that are recognized to manage concussion symptoms, I think we really need to start identifying those concussions after whiplash injuries and really screening. And once we identify those that might potentially have a concussion, notifying the physician, including including in our plan of care that we plan to manage those concussion symptoms, just because those individuals with neck pain that also have concussion symptoms, if the concussion symptoms are not addressed, it actually delays the recovery from their orthopedic complaints as well. Anything else that you wanted to talk about, Mike, that we haven't touched on that you feel like is important or relevant? I mean, personally, there's, there's so much that you can learn about concussion from physiological side. I mean, we continue to learn so much. I think having a simple, easy to reproduce assessment is going to target each of those profiles that we can potentially target as PTs. Most of our concussion rehab comes down to basic habituation training where we find something that produces symptoms and we do that activity over and over and over until it becomes less symptomatic. Other things are, I think we need to know when to refer. 
don't forget about the neck. If, if, if you see a script that says concussion, don't forget about the neck. If they have headaches, don't forget the headaches. A lot of times come from the neck. Start there. That's your easy button. It gives you a chance to get your hands on your patients early, potentially give them some immediate symptomatic relief through potentially some targeting of that upper cervical spine. It can easily be assessed with just a simple flexion rotation test. Put their neck into full flexion, rotate side to side. You see a significant decrease to one side of rotation or with a little bit of symptom reproduction. Target that upper cervical spine with some manual therapy, potentially some you know snag stretching, something along those lines. And do your best to get that patient, like we always talk about, feeling better, kind of walking out of your clinic on that first day. I think that's a good point, remembering that dizziness and headache can both come from the cervical spine. It was actually a good study looking at grade four versus grade five uh, cervical mobilization to the upper cervical spine as far as decreasing symptoms of dizziness and headache in patients with cervical spine complaints. And it basically demonstrated that the grade five mobilization was superior to the grade four. So just something to keep in mind is finding those hypomobility deficits in the upper cervical spine and really addressing those particular components. And in addition to any proprioceptive cervical deficits in regards to detecting where the head is in relation to the neck in space. Those can also be components to integrate as well. So I think really making sure that you're checking all the boxes, addressing the concussion components, addressing the cervical spine components. Mike, any thoughts? Close us out with a final statement here. I think that we can really help these patients. And it's pretty simple to kind of make your evaluation process pretty easy. And treatment just becomes taking your evaluation and getting a little bit creative with it and just meeting the patient where they're at. So hope this helps. Awesome. And I'm going to plug Reeves again one more time, ReevesPT.com. You can find his evaluation sheet there. So I want to, again, thank everyone for listening. I hope you guys are enjoying the content. We're really trying our best to articulate some of this information and easy to understand terms, even though we both have a tendency to just ramble our thoughts. So appreciate you guys listening in. Thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for, so as we were saying, a physical therapy podcast. Really appreciate you guys listening in. We hope you have a great day and that you'll join us for the next week's episode.